It's just really good to be here with you this morning. I was longing and looking forward to this day. Uh, I always, I mean, I look forward to every week, but I always really look forward to baptism services. Uh, when people come to me and they, they approach me and they confess that, that they have come to believe in Jesus Christ and accept Him as their Savior. And they ask, what do I do now? And, and we talk about baptism. And this morning we're going to have a young man, um, who's decided to give his life to Jesus, Owen. And, uh, he's going to be baptized after of the, ser- the sermon here this morning. So please stick around for that. It's going to be wonderful. And, uh, but before we get to that, we are going to take a break from going through the book of first Corinthians. We have been walking through that book together. But uh, I think it's important for all of us to have a right understanding and a right mindset of what baptism is, why we do it, and what are the criteria that, that need to be met in order for someone to go through with baptism. And even though we have one person already committed to doing that today, uh, I just want to tell you from the offset that as we walk through this Scripture, if you have never been baptized in your life, if you have given your life to Christ, if you have never gone through with baptism, and as we walk through, if, if you identify that, that all the criteria are met in your life, then I would encourage you to make the decision to be baptized yourself today. Or perhaps you're not even sure about Jesus. Maybe you, you're not sure if you really believe in Jesus or not. I hope after this sermon you will be convinced that you do, and in doing so, that you will demonstrate it through stepping forward and being baptized today. So that's my hope and my prayer, but ultimately it's up to the Lord. Because my job is to preach His Word, and it's your job to decide what to do with it. And so I hope that your hearts are open this morning to the Word of God. So open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be at Acts this morning, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. And let's open up with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the truth that informs us of the work that you've done here on earth and in our hearts to secure our salvation. We thank you, God, for this awesome privilege to be here together as the church to carry on the ministry that you have given us to do, to preach to the ends of the earth, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to observe communion with one another, to fellowship, to sing songs of praise, to come alongside one another in compassion and care and love. God, I I thank you for this place where all those commandments of yours, all those just great instructions of yours can be carried out. And Father, I pray that you would just tender the hearts of all who are here this morning. May all of our hearts become soft like good soil. May your word be planted and may you cause it to grow and produce. And Father, I I pray if anybody is on the fence about you, not quite sure what they believe or or what to believe. God, I pray that they'll be convinced this morning. I pray that they'll stop running from you. They'll stop putting up walls and barriers between you. 
but that they'll receive you. And they'll do it joyfully. So Father, please be with us this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, so Jesus Christ, when he left his disciples and he ascended into heaven, one last word of instruction he gave to his disciples and to the church is what we like to call the Great Commission. And in the church, there's two primary ordinances that Christ has given us to carry out and observe, to ensure that we are observing. Uh, the first one is communion, and we observed that last week together. We shared communion. We broke bread together. We did it in the name of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We observed the body and, and the blood that was broken for our sins, and we did this in remembrance of Him. And so that's the first ordinance. The second ordinance is baptism, which when we look at the Great Commission of Christ, we see that every true believer in Jesus Christ is called to be baptized. And every true believer in Jesus Christ who has been baptized is then called to evangelize and share that good news with others. And ultimately, hopefully lead to their baptism as well. Matthew 28, 18-20, Christ said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so as we observed communion last week, again, just a demonstration or a reminder um, of, of what Christ has done for us, this week we will now observe baptism as a, a sign, a symbol of, uh, outward symbol of what happened inwardly, a confession of faith publicly before the saints. And so, <clears throat> this morning, we rejoice in the Lord and what He has done for us. And I wanted to walk through one of probably the more popular stories when it comes to baptism. This is uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, the encounter that they had together, the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. And so I wanted to walk through this with you this morning, look at a few details from the text, but then also examine the five criteria that we see in this text in which baptism should take place. And so if your Bibles are open, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26, says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So I wanted to set the scene really quick and familiarize you with who is involved here and where they're at and what's happening. So first of all, we find there's this Philip that an angel of the Lord is instructing Philip to rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So a very specific instruction here. Now, Philip, there's a few different Philips throughout the Bible. Uh, Philip in 
Uh, its original language means lover of horses. And there must have been a lot of people who loved horses back then because they named their kids Philip, their boys Philip. Now, this Philip is uh, not the pragmatic apostle Philip who convinced Nathaniel to see about Jesus, if you remember that Bible story. The Philip in this account was rather a different man and an evangelist. And he was one of the trusted men that was appointed to manage the daily distribution of the food. If you remember in Acts when they divided between uh, elders and deacons, and he was one of the men on that list, Philip. He also became a missionary who carried the gospel to Samaria. We know that from Acts chapter 8, verse 5. And he was also a ministry partner with the Apostle Paul. So he was an important figure, just like the other Philip was, but he had a different calling and a different function. Now, if you remember, we talked about last week about how God calls each person uh, uniquely, that that not everybody is called in the same way or gifted in the same way. And this Philip, God had put it in his heart and mind to be more of a missionary and an evangelist. And so his heart was tender to the call of God to go wherever was necessary to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he was fulfilled in his life was when he went to a foreign place, talked to a foreign person, and shared with them the gospel and taught them the gospel for the first time. And his joy and delight was to see them receive Christ and be changed forever. That was his calling. That's where he was fulfilled and satisfied. And so he had a, a sensitive heart to the Holy Spirit. And nothing was too radical for him. When God would call him to go to a place, he was like, let's go. He had his go bag ready to go all the time. Any of you like have a have a go bag ready to go? Are you that type of person? This was Philip. He was ready to go on call. And then we read about this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, a eunuch is an intentionally or unintentionally castrated man, and in this case, uh, typically in the place of Ethiopia, if you were a castrated person, if you served. Uh, under the office of royalty within Ethiopia. That means that it was probably done on purpose. And again, castration is the removal of genitalia. Uh, the reason why they did this is so that as they're working in close quarters with officers and royalty from Ethiopia, that there would be no offspring. There would be no foul play and offspring from this service. Because offspring was a big deal and they wanted to make sure that their royal line continued through royalty. That it wasn't through just some servant boy on a lonely night. And so this eunuch, we find out, was the head of the treasury of Candace. Now, you've heard the name Candace before. Uh, Candace was more of a title uh, sort of like the pharaohs or Caesar or the Abimelechs or like president. It's more of a title. Candace was a title for the ruler or the leader of the Ethiopians. And so he submitted. He was the treasurer of this particular Candace. And he was, he was tasked with handling 
the governing duties and the financial duties of the kingdom. And so, even though he was a castrated man, even though he was a eunuch, even though he was essentially a slave, he was in an honored position among slaves. So honored, in, in fact, that, that Candace trusted to send him all the way to Jerusalem uh, with an entire convoy along with him. And so, here we find these, these two people in human history and their paths are going to cross. Now, where did this historical event occur? Uh, it's important for us to know because I remember as a kid hearing the Bible stories and then also going home to watch The Wizard of Oz or, or other fantasy, you know, type, type stories. I, sometimes I, I began to think that, well, I've never been to Jerusalem. I've never been to the Middle East. You know, in my mind, I started to conflate fantasy with, with these Bible stories. And I thought, well, th- this is a faraway place. It's, you know, it, it doesn't really matter if it's a real place. But the fact is, place does have meaning in the Bible. Place is important. And whether you know it or not, this place right here, in, in the space that we occupy, not just the building, but this place, Clayton Community Church, is important. And it has value. And it has meaning. And God oftentimes makes decisions and appointments based on place. When we look at the Israelites and, and the fact that, that God well, beginning with Abraham, that God called His people to occupy a specific place for a specific reason. And you might think, well, it's maybe it's just random. No, God had every intention of putting them in that exact place with the exact elevation, with the exact trails and routes running to and fro, the, 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 the plain of, of Jezreel, the, the um, the different rivers that run through, all of those were by design for God's people to exist so that His story can unfold. And so when we think about this place, this narrative that takes place here is not a fairy tale that takes place in the land of Oz. This is Jerusalem. This is Israel. This is a real, actual place. Now, Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. And because of the magnificent temple that was built and then destroyed and then rebuilt and built upon, uh, it became the, the premier epicenter for Jewish worship. And this also was by design. But during the first Jesus movement, as Jesus came along and He lived and He preached and then He died and then He rose again and He sent out His disciples to continue the movement during this Jesus movement, it was a place of great political unrest. Do we know anything about political unrest these days? Now, oftentimes when it comes to political unrest, there's, there's many different uh, players in, in play, many different things going on. And the same thing here, uh, when we think about before the time of Christ, worship was reserved for Jews only, with only very special exceptions. But the Jesus movement was teaching that worship is for all people, that anyone, anywhere, across the world, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, 
anybody, anybody anywhere can come and worship the Lord here in this place or anywhere, wherever you are. And so this created somewhat of a, a division in Israel. You had, you had the traditionalists and the Pharisees who were, who were trying hard to preserve their, their traditions and the old, old covenant ways. Having rejected Christ, they, they became ambassadors for the old way and rejectors of the new way. I mean, you really only have to look at Saul, who then later became the Apostle Paul. Like, he was trying really hard to cancel the Jesus movement. To silence and cancel the Jesus movement. I mean, we have people today trying to silence movements. Trying to cancel movements and ideas. It was nothing, There's nothing new under the sun. During the time of Christ, as the message of Christ, the Gospel was growing large and was influencing everyone. There were people who were sometimes even violently opposing it, including Saul, who became Paul. But ultimately, they couldn't stop it from happening. The number of followers of Jesus was multiplying in that place and, and even up into uh, Greece and Roman territory. Now, couple this with the fact that Israel was still under Roman occupation. So here you have the internal divide and the internal stressors that are happening. And then you have Roman occupation and all the Roman problems that they had. And so it was a place of great political tension. And the tension was only mounting. And Jerusalem Jerusalem became a very polarized place. So as people came to worship, all these factors were in play. Now, if you look at the place where the eunuch was from, uh, I, I have a map here. The eunuch was from a place called Ethiopia, which actually it's more like Nubia. It's this entire red region right here. And if you look all the way up there to Jerusalem, it's, uh, it's not very close, especially considering they didn't have vehicles back then. Um, what kind of vehicles would they drive if they did have a vehicle back then? They'd be in one accord, right? That's, that's a CJ joke. They would be in one accord. Camels. Yes. But when you look at the distance between Nubia and Jerusalem, uh, we find that it's 1,200 miles distance one way, so 2,400 miles two ways. So if you're going to travel from Nubia to Jerusalem, you would have to be very intentional about it, wouldn't you? Now, this eunuch, to travel all that way with a caravan, with a, a company of people, I'm sure he was sent specifically by Candace for a purpose. Now, what purpose might that be? Well, it says specifically in the text that he traveled to worship. So he was sent to worship. What are different ways you can worship? Well, one of those ways is by donating, tithing, you know, giving a portion of your riches or what you have. That's, that's a form of worship. And being the treasurer, I'm assuming that's exactly what he was doing. That she sent him on her behalf to go and to worship in the form of giving finances. So, but all the while, the Ethiopian eunuch, 
He was getting caught up in all this, this drama and all this talk about this Messiah who came and people were telling him that, yeah, he, he rose from the dead and yeah, you know, here's some scripture to look at. Here, here's some scrolls. Here's some text that you can read. And so he was on this road and he was on his way. And this is where the interaction between Philip and the eunuch takes place. So when we look at Philip, he was directed by an angel to go. And again, because of his faithfulness to God's call, when an angel directed him to go, he went. And he went to this specific place. I could just imagine him standing there by the road, just, just waiting. Waiting for this opportune moment, this interaction that God had preordained to take place. And any of you ever feel like God is calling you to go somewhere, but you're not sure why? God calls you to maybe apply for a job and you're not really sure why, to move to a place and you don't know what He really wants you to do. I think sometimes we, we wait. Like we feel the call of God, but we wait because we're like, I need more details, Lord. You know, it's kind of like my wife when I make a suggestion about something we should go do. She's like, I'm going to need some more details. Well, why don't we just go and find out? No. How much does it cost? Yada, 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 right? A lot that way, especially in the West. But sometimes God will say, I just want you to go. And I want you to wait. And you will know when you know. You will know when you know what's supposed to happen. Steve can attest to that. Hebrews 13.2 tells us, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Who was this angel? Was it a cherubim? Was it seraphim? Was it you know, a flapping angel with a, with, a, with a trumpet? Was it simply a messenger? Was it a stranger who told him to go? We don't really know. Mess. Angel literally means messenger. So it could have been some kind of celestial being, or it could have been simply someone God sent to him to tell him to go. We don't really know. Either way, Philip was directed to go. He knew it was from God, and so he went. And as this eunuch was going to worship, one interesting fact is when you look at Deuteronomy 23.1, It says, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So go back to this political drama that's happening. And here he's probably being informed of this. Maybe there's an external marker that that lets them know, that informs them that, that he is in fact a eunuch, a castrated man. And you could see the Pharisees trying to stop his caravan from entering into the place, the site of worship. Oh, oh, you have money? Oh, then then come on in. Right? But no, he, he was probably made aware of this as he's coming in. You are a eunuch? You are not allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. It says in Deuteronomy, the words of Moses, you shall not enter in. You stay out here. We worship. Give us your money. Yes, yes, yes. 
but you stay out here. It is not permitted. But when he finds out the work of Jesus made a way for him to come and be in the assembly of, of believers, this was good news to his ears. Because up until this point, he was under the impression that he was not allowed. Then people shared with him, Christ has fulfilled the law. And he has opened up the gospel for all people. Jews, Gentiles, eunuchs, kings, candaces, whoever. Whoever would come to him would be welcomed in. And so we find the eunuch trying to figure this stuff out. He's, he's in his chariot. He's reading Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. He says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, um, excuse me, sorry, this is the fulfillment that Jesus brought. Isaiah 56, 3 through 5 prophesied, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So as the eunuch was reading through Isaiah, and as he read this passage, what hope would that would have filled his heart? The scripture is talking about me. And I like to think also maybe him and, and the Candace at the time had a really good relationship. And maybe she caught wind of, of this Messiah who came fulfilling this prophecy, and she wanted to send him so that maybe he could find hope. We don't know that. That's just conjecture. But then we find uh, through the rest of this story what exactly happens. Verse 29 as we go on. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So here he is waiting. The chariot comes. The Spirit of God moves in his heart to go speak to this person in the chariot. Have you ever had that kind of an instance in your life? You're just overwhelmed and you just know that you know that you know I'm supposed to go talk to this person. I remember the very first time, uh, it was early on when we started attending here. I remember sitting in the back and I remember seeing a young man sitting towards the front. You could just tell he was kind of distraught and God was just kind of started pulling on me and influencing me and saying, go talk to this person. Just go sit down and talk to him. And so, I went, didn't know this person, went and talked to him, and I sat down and said, hey, I'm Craig, good to meet you, I just wanted to tell you, the Lord has inspired me to come talk to you, and to pray with you, I don't know why, and then suddenly he started to tear up, and he looked at me and said, I could really use some prayer. He was going through something. I mean, you could look at all the social cues, but I had no idea. It was God who led me there, and I prayed with him, and he was thankful. 
You know, so God will do this to us sometimes. He will lead us to a place for a purpose. And this is what he did with Philip. So verse 30, so Philip ran to him. He ran to him. As soon as he knew, he ran. He didn't hesitate. He didn't kind of kick the dust. He ran to his appointment. He's like, yes, this is why I came here. Let's do this. Don't want to waste any time. So he ran to him. And he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, how can I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with the scripture he had told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Just like he came, he carried him away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So just like that, in an instant, miraculously, Philip was brought to that place at that time to have that appointed meeting with the eunuch, to come and join him in his chariot, to explain what he was reading from the Scriptures, and to explain the work of Jesus Christ, who died not only for royalty, but also for eunuchs. That he, the death of Christ opens the door for fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. That Christ was breaking the barriers that stood between nationalities and personalities and situations. That Christ and His arms were wide open to Him. And the result of this was a baptism. It was a confession of faith. The eunuch in this moment received Jesus Christ as his Savior. And the demonstration of that was it went down and he was baptized. Philip disappeared as quickly as he came. And so, what we find here is a beautiful story of salvation, but what we also find in this story is five criteria for baptism. And I think this is a, a good standard uh, that I hold to, that I think as a church, we should hold to. And so, the five standards are this. The first one is a soul-seeking God. The eunuch was clearly seeking God. I mean, who travels 2,400 miles and who dares to read the book of Isaiah unless they care or want to know about God? Isaiah can be a very difficult book to read. And so, 
Verse 27 says specifically, he came to worship. He was looking for answers. He wanted to find God. Now, how many people have we met in our life who are the same way? How many of us were that way at one point? How many of us are that way right now? We desperately want to know, God, who are you? Why did you make us this way? But why are things the way that they are? Can they be fixed? What comes after death? All these questions, seeking after God. The eunuch was seeking after God. And he was personally engaged in Scripture and trying to figure out himself. He was a soul seeking after God. Matthew 7, 7 through 8 tells us, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. I've gotten this question many times in my pastorate. Well, what about the people who are in a third world country who don't speak any language of, of, of what the Bible is translated? What about them? If they die, are they going to hell? That's not fair. They've never heard the gospel. That's not fair. The answer to this is, in Revelation, it tells us that the Spirit and the church beckon come. This is a signal that has been transmitted to the ends of the earth. It's a signal that exists within creation itself. It's the blueprint and the thumbprint of God in His creation Himself. So that anybody with eyes to see ears to hear, hands to touch, if they perceive and view and and taste creation in any regard, that should lead everybody to the conclusion that something is bigger than me out there. Somebody, something made this. This is too complex. As we grow in our wisdom and knowledge of the human body, of the galaxies, of the way things work, of creatures across this earth, then that should naturally lead all people to the conclusion that there is an intelligent designer out there. In the same way that if you're walking along the beach and you found a cell phone, you wouldn't say, wow, that was just randomly mutated over time and evolved into this cell phone sitting right here. No, the natural conclusion is Somebody made that, somebody had that, somebody left that. And when we look at the world, and if we're truly honest, we have the same impression. And just the awe that you feel when you are in an incredibly beautiful place. My wife and I are becoming addicted to mountaintops. And we're, when you hike up a mountaintop and you, you grind it out all the way up to the top and you stand at the top and you see a valley of mountains, there's something that happens spiritually to you where you just, you're in awe, you're in worship, and you're just, you're praising God for what He had made. And so, if you're a soul seeking after God, if you're asking these questions, if you're asking God to reveal Himself to you, the Bible says that He will answer. Answer will be given to you. Seek, you will, you will find Knock, the door is going to be open. So there is nobody who has an excuse on planet Earth not to believe in God. Because God will reveal Himself to them if they're asking genuinely, either through His Spirit or through the church, through missionaries. Because we have read stories of missionaries who have had encounters in their dreams 
with Christ himself. Before even hearing about Christ. They had an encounter with Christ in a dream, in a vision. And as the missionaries came to minister, they started sharing about Christ. And the missionaries said, I had a dream about this person you tell me about. So God reveals himself. He transmits his gospel message through his spirit and through the church. And so, this morning, are you genuinely, are you a soul who is genuinely seeking and searching for God? If so, then you meet one of the five criteria of baptism. Second criteria. There must be a reliable resource of the truth. Now, in the eunuch's quest to discover truth and to find God, he was reading the Scriptures. You know he was reading Isaiah. Now, unbelievers, as they're reading the Scripture, find it difficult to grasp the whole counsel of the Word of God because ultimately, what does the Bible say? That the, the Word of God is spiritually discerned. That those who don't have the Spirit of God cannot discern the Word of God. They can understand facts about the Word of God, but they don't understand the truth of the Word of God without the Spirit of God. And again, this is where the church uh, comes into play. 1 Corinthians 2.12-14 says, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Therefore, this is why God set it up this way. God has, is using the church and, the, and His Spirit, along with His Spirit, to preach biblical truth to the world, to open up the hearts and the ears and the minds of those who are preached to. And so in this case, with the eunuch, God sent Philip to be that person. God sends His people to go and to unlock the spiritual truth of the Scripture to those who don't have the Spirit of God. Romans 10, 13-17 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I believe with my whole heart that Jesus Christ has sent me here at Clayton Community Church behind this pulpit in this community to preach his gospel. That is my calling. I don't have a go bag. All my stuff is unpacked in my house. God has not called me to go anywhere anytime soon. I'm called to preach here. Some of you are called to go somewhere. Maybe you don't know exactly where. You know that you're called. And you're being obedient to that calling. But my calling is to preach here. And if you are sitting here and listening to my words, and right now the Spirit of God is speaking to you through His Word. And it's for a reason. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ yet, 
these words are meant to open your heart and your mind to believe in Him. I have seen it happen many times in my life where I don't plan any, any of this behind-the-scenes stuff. I, I'm a simple man. Simple in life, simple in mind. I'm not a great intellect. I can't plan ahead of today. I'm not that smart. I'm not smart enough to swindle people. I'm just not. And there has been so many times where I'm just being faithful to read the text, to follow along in the book, and there will be someone sitting in the pew who will tell me that they felt like they were, God was talking directly to them and to their exact situation. That is all God, my friends. He orchestrates all of that. The only thing I can say is I'm just being faithful to my calling. But God, if He has you here today, it is because He wants to open up your heart and mind to hear His gospel. And so, if that's you today, uh, if you are a soul genuinely seeking for God, and if you have ears to hear the words that I'm telling you here this morning and week to week, or if, or if you are in contact with anyone who is teaching you and, and sharing the gospel with you, then you have met two out of the five criteria to be baptized. Third criteria. You must have at least a basic understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In order to be saved, you do not need a Bible degree or have to have even read the entire Bible, though it helps. But all you have to do is know the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if it's in its most simplest form. Philip, he started with Isaiah, which was talking about the coming Messiah. And from there, he unpacked the whole gospel so that the eunuch could understand it. And I, I wish I, I could have been a fly on the wall in that chariot and heard exactly how he presented the gospel. But here's how we share the gospel today, at least how I share the gospel. Many of you have heard of the Romans Road of Salvation. The book of Romans contains within it the entire gospel. First of all, it begins with the fact and, and the assertion that all have sinned. Every single person has sinned. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we need to come to that conclusion. That on our own merit, we are not righteous. But we are sinners. We are all in need of a Savior. We have all fallen short of God's standard. That's number one. Number two, the cost of our sin, which all of us have committed, is death. Remember back in Genesis? Charlie even left me a note that says, Craig, take off your watch. I thought I went into the settings and I fixed it, but I did not. The cost of sin is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Raise your hand if you're a sinner here this morning. Jim, raise your hand. 
They were talking. We all recognize that we're sinners. The cost of our sin, of being sinners, is death. That is the sentence. You are sentenced to death if you are a sinner. That's not the end of the story. Because we find that Christ came and He died for our sins. Philip taught this Starting from Isaiah this morning, I teach you from Romans 5, 6 through 8. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good, good person one would dare to even die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ did not wait until you became a perfect, righteous Pharisee before He decided to come and die. He died in the midst of your sin. As you are sinning, Christ is hanging on the cross, beckoning you to come and to believe and to be forgiven. While you are a sinner, He died. As you sin. That's the beauty of the Gospel. And that's the, the great beauty of, of the offer that Christ gives. Is that just come to Him and you will be forgiven. Believe in Him. Trust Him that He can absolve all you. Whatever you have done in your life, He can change you. He can save you. He will take you from being one way and He will make you another way. And this is the work of Christ. Nothing that you can do except for trusting Him. Just grabbing onto His hand and believing and being saved. And knowing that Christ had died, if you truly believe that, all the Bible asks of you is that you confess and believe in Jesus as your Lord. Romans 10, 9-10, if you confess with your mouth, that means make a public confession. Don't just bury it down deep inside and pretend like it didn't happen. But tell somebody about it. Tell your best friend. Tell your parents. Tell the person next to you at church. Tell them, I decided to follow Jesus today. If you're ashamed to confess the name of Jesus, then your Father in Heaven will be ashamed of you. So don't be ashamed to confess and admit what is happening within your heart. Confess and believe that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We're going to be celebrating Easter coming up here soon, which of course is the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And as Paul says, that our, our faith and our preaching hinge entirely on the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, there is no point to any of this. Everything we do is based off of the premise and the belief that Christ came and He died and He conquered death and He rose again. Because our hope is that when we die, as He promised, that we would also be raised with Him. That death is not the end. It is not the end for Christ, and it won't be the end for us. So therefore, to believe that, to uh, against all reason and logic, to believe that when you die, that supernaturally that God is going to raise you from the dead and you'll be with Him forever, to truly believe that. And that's it. The beauty of that and the fifth point is that God's 
free gift is eternal life. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How sweet it is to be at peace with God, our Maker. To not feel that constant tension or doubt. Where am I? Am, if I die, am I going to hell? But no, to have this peace that passes understanding that God is with you. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The believer is truly free who is in Christ. You have peace. You have freedom in Him. Freedom from sin. And now you are free to live for Him. Romans 8, 38-39 For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. How sweet it is to know that you are secure in His mighty, righteous, sovereign hands. Strong hands. So if you are a soul genuinely searching for God and you have ears to hear the words that I am speaking to you right here and now from the Holy Spirit, and you are ready to confess and believe in Jesus Christ and His resurrection, then you meet three out of the five criteria. And let me tell you something right now. If right here and now, you believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, if you believe in, in His work and what He's done, and that He can save your soul, and in your heart you have given your life to Him, right here and now, if an asteroid should fall on this church, you are going to heaven. Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit precedes the baptism of water. The baptism of water is the public confession of what took place in your heart when you believed in God. So if right now you believe, you are a child of God. Fourth criteria. A genuine desire to be baptized. So you're saved, now what do you do? The first act of, of obedience from a believer is to be baptized. Jesus was baptized. He preached to be baptized. The disciples preached to be baptized. You must be baptized. It's not necessary for salvation. However, those who are saved will be baptized. Does that make sense? Yes. But you must have a genuine desire to go through the baptism. The eunuch demonstrated this desire because he was convinced of his own genuine beliefs. After Philip explained the gospel to him and after he received it, suddenly they came next to water. And the eunuch was anxious. He said, see, there's water right here. What prevents me from being baptized, huh? Philip, huh? So he commanded the chariot to stop. And him and Philip went both down into the water. He didn't stop and say, oh, well, I am wearing an expensive robe. I, I shouldn't be baptized today. I, I don't want to be wet for the rest of the day. No, he was anxious. I can't tell you how many people have made the decision not to be baptized because they're like, well, I didn't bring any proper clothes or anything like that. My friends, this is your faith. Christ walked up the hill of Calvary. 
carrying a, a heavy cross. He got tortured. He got mutilated. He got hung on a cross, suffocated, and died for your sins. And you can't get into water wearing jeans? Come on now. What does that say about the future prospect of your ministry? Because he also says, if you're going to follow him, you will likely suffer as he suffered. You'll be hated as he was hated. And if you can't endure a little gene rash on your thighs for a little while, maybe you're not quite ready after all. So don't let clothes, don't let the circumstance, don't let embarrassment hold you back. If you have a genuine desire to be baptized, step forward, step out, be bold, follow Christ as He was bold for you. There are certain circumstances where someone might request baptism, however, where it would not be appropriate. Again, and that's why I say it's a genuine desire to be baptized. As a pastor, I've heard a lot of things, I've talked to a lot of people, and I can tell you, during and after every baptism, there's always kids who come forward and say, I don't want to be baptized. Then you ask them, okay, why, why do you want to be baptized? I don't know, it looks like fun. Well, I want to get in the water there. I want to go swim. You watch these videos of kids who do that spontaneous thing and then they do a cannonball into the baptismal and you just, you just know, okay, their, their heart's not in the right place. Um, so with children, uh, as, as we did with Owen, Owen came and talked to me. He expressed an interest in being baptized because he believes. And we talked about it. I asked him questions about it. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's a genuine faith, a genuine desire to follow Jesus. And so therefore, no matter your age, you're the age of my daughter, um, and I believe that you are ready to be baptized. And that's also something I talk about with the parents as well. I talked with Stephanie about that. We even talked a little bit with Grandma about that. And we were all on the same page. We all agreed that, yes, this is a genuine decision he's making. This is not just because it looks like fun or so-and-so did it because he actually wants to do it. I had to turn down my youngest daughter for a couple years after VBS baptisms. She was really anxious to do it, but I could tell she just didn't quite, she wasn't quite there. She didn't quite have her mind wrapped around it. Her heart wasn't really in it. I think she just wanted to be a part of that. So we made her wait for a couple years. But then when I noticed she was ready, it was time for her to be baptized. As far as infants go, there is no instance in the Bible where there is infant baptism. We do not um, honor or, or celebrate any kind of infant baptism here in this church. However, if you are one who was baptized as an infant, let me tell you, your parents must have really cared about you. They must have really loved you and must have really uh, had great intentions for you. So I don't want to demean any any parent who has ever done that for their child. But at the same time, I will say to you, you should be baptized as a consenting adult. As an adult who has made that decision for yourself, you should be baptized. So if, if you had an infant baptism and have not been baptized since, you should be baptized. We do. We don't do infant baptism, but we do um, baby dedications here at Clayton Community Church. It's not something we've seen for a long time. It's not typically something that I'll, I'll go hunt you down and say, you need to dedicate your baby to the church. Dedicate them. 
But if anybody comes and asks and says, we would like our baby dedicated in front of the church, we'd be more than happy to do it. We'd love to do it. And the idea behind infant or baby dedication is simply you saying, I would like my child to be raised in the company of caring people and in this church and raised up in the Lord. Essentially, the church becomes like the godfather figure of the entire church. Not just one person assigned, but everybody. Dedicated in prayer for that child. Dedicated in prayer for you and your family. Dedicated in thinking throughout the week. I wonder how they're doing. I wonder if they need help. Dedicated to, you need a babysitter so you can go out on a date with your husband. I'm there for you. Baby dedication. The idea is us wrapping our arms around you and your family and saying that we are here for you and your child. And they will be in our thoughts and our prayers often. So, I'd encourage you to do that. If you have a, a new baby, a uh, baby on the way, you'll be happy to do that. Also, some people have had uh, questionable prior experiences. So, I've had people who have come and said, I was when I first became a believer, I was going to a Catholic church and uh, I was baptized as a Catholic. Does that count? Well, through further investigation, as you ask questions, it sounds like it, on their part, it was a genuine conversion, a genuine baptism. They weren't privy to, to all the doctrinal errors that were involved in the teaching of that church. But on their part, it, it was genuine. And they knew why they were doing it. And they did it for all the right reasons. The Bible doesn't teach rebaptism, other than in a case where it's done in a completely wrong way or a wrong mindset. If you're backsliding, the Bible doesn't say, well, the way you fix that is you get rebaptized. I've had people say that to me as well. If you've been baptized and it was absolutely genuine, it's one and done. You don't ever need to be baptized again. And also, you have to look out for the attention seekers as well. Sometimes people just want attention. Uh, and believe it or not, this happens. Where people get baptized in every single church that they go to. And it's not just a misunderstanding of, well, you need to be baptized into our fellowship. No, it's a, I want to go up front and be the spectacle. I mean, I, I have a good network of pac- pastors I talk to, and there are people who go from church to church to become the spectacle, to become the, the center of attention. And they, they love that because it helps, helps them to build relationships quicker. So, a genuine desire to be baptized. If you are a soul genuinely searching for God and you have ears to hear the words that I am saying to you from the Holy Spirit and you are ready to confess and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that God raised Him from the dead and you have a genuine desire to be baptized, a personal conviction, then you meet four out of the five criteria of baptism. The very last one, then we'll close up here and we'll close up with the baptism. You need a body of water. It's kind of hard to baptize without water. That seems to be an important element. It tells us they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them, him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. From this text, it seems as though full immersion is the mode that is... Um, Operable. That is the mode that we should practice. And so therefore, 
at Plain Community Church, so long as it's possible, we do practice full immersion. If I happen to uh, put you under and maybe like the tip of your nose is still dry, it still counts. Okay? It's the whole, the act of it is what's important. The heart behind it is what's important. And maybe you're temporarily passing through Clayton right now. You don't plan on being here very long. You have no intention of becoming a member here, um, being in a serious relationship with us here. Our whole goal of baptism here is not to recruit new members for Clayton Community Church. It's to recruit new members for the kingdom of God. And so if you're just passing through and you meet all those criteria, and we, by the way, we meet this criteria here this morning because we have a baptismal ready to go at just a little bit colder than lukewarm temperature uh, with, it's clean, it's clean water, I tested myself. We meet that criteria. So therefore, if all these criteria in your life, if you can check every single one of those boxes and you have not been baptized, then today you need to be baptized. What greater day to do than right now? And so, the eunuch, we recognize his immediate need to be baptized. Do you recognize that need? Are you tired of living life the way that you have? Are you ready to take Christ truly seriously? You know that you believe in Him, but you're not quite ready to take that step. Well, He is holding out His hand to you right now. And he is beckoning you to come, to make that commitment to Him. I'm not going to pressure you. I'm not going to make you. I'm not going to come up to you after service and say, why didn't you get baptized? This is between you and God. And I hope that you make the right decision. So right now, um, I think I just saw them leave. Did they go to the bathroom or something? Getting changed? Okay. So he is getting changed at the moment. Uh, but we are going to have a baptism service and as soon as he comes on out. And I'm wondering if we can invite the kids in the classrooms to come and join us. I really like when the kids surround the baptismal, I think that's a great thing. If you want to stay right where you're at in your seat and observe from there, uh, or if you just you really have to go, you have to make an appointment, um, feel free to leave if you need to. Or if you'd like to come and get closer and circle around, then you are welcome to do that. So why don't we go ahead and do that now.